2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Dozeman. One of the most recognizable tropes in American society in the past few decades is the scarred war veteran returning from foreign lands with wounds both visible and invisible. His experiences are incomprehensible to those who have not served, but we owe him everything. And it is our duty as American citizens to honor him with non judgmental empathy so that he might eventually heal and reintegrate into the national community. But this narrative, this response to combat, is neither natural or the only possible way of dealing with the issue. In fact, my guest Nadia Abu al Haj argues that it is a distinctly apolitical interpretation, one that works as a cover for the politics of American Empire in her new book. Combat Trauma, Imaginaries of War and Citizenship in Post-9-11 America. Beginning her narrative in the 1960s and 70s with the war in Vietnam, El Haj traces PTSD back to its roots as a response to extreme circumstances. In the soldiers being studied, psychologists found men who were shattered by their experiences, struggling to process them and move on when they returned home. However, key to their understanding was, was a sense of guilt and complicity in the war. They might have been damaged and in need of care to move forward with their lives, but they were still guilty of immoral and criminal acts. The diagnosis was not just an individualized pathology, but part of a broader political critique. And part of the healing process involved engaging in activism to fight the very systems the soldiers had been participants of. Fast forward a few decades, and this political angle has almost been entirely erased. Instead, soldiers returning from Iraq and Afghanistan are no longer perpetrators, but victims who bear a burden we all must honor them for. This new discourse around trauma buries the possibility of political dissent, leaving us unable to understand the decisions that produced the trauma in the first place, but also focuses so heavily on the traumatized soldier that civilians caught in the crossfire almost never factor in our understanding, in spite of the fact that they are the most numerous victims of wars in the last several decades. This combination has produced a toxic form of militarism, one incapable of sustained political critique, which helps explain why the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere have been able to go on for so long. Combining fields and disciplines and tying numerous disparate threads together, El hajjs work is a devastatingly urgent eye-opening critique of a society that has long lost its capacity for critical self-reflection. It reveals many ideological traps and mazes many have found themselves lost in, and even if it cannot bring about a more peaceful world on its own, it can point the way towards a more critical one. Nadia Abu al-Haj is a professor of anthropology at Barnard College. She is also the author of The Genealogical Science, The Search for Jewish Origins in the Politics of Epistemology, and Facts on the Ground, Archaeological Practice and Territorial Self-Fashioning in Israeli Society. Nadia Abu al welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I always like to have guests introduce themselves at the beginning of episodes. Could you maybe tell me and our listeners a little bit bit about who you are, what your work and research tends to focus on, and maybe a little bit about how you came to write this book? Um, What kind of drew you to this topic?
0: Okay. Well, I mean, I'm a professor of anthropology at um, Barnard College and Columbia University. and I sort of began my life as a Middle East studies person or my academic life. So my first book, uh, which is called Facts on the Ground, was about Israeli archaeology and the process of colonizing Palestine. Um, and my second book uh, sort of followed in that vein of thinking both about uh Zionism, but then moving it more into sort of contemporary Jewish identity as well and questions of race, et cetera, which was called the genealogical science, looking at genetic history. And so the move into this book is in some ways, um, in some ways a leap because it's much more squarely situated in American studies, but it has strong links to two things in my previous works, which one is an interest in the Middle East, ultimately this, kind of, this was born of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And also, each of my books has some sort of scientific discipline at the center of it. So archaeology one one, students of subfield of genetics. And this sort of rotates around a certain um, set of conversations and practices in psychiatry. Um, I came to this book really early on in the post 9-11 wars, although I didn't start writing it until much later. Um, but really following the war in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, especially as casualties to U.S. troops started rising and the resistance in Iraq in particular started rising. And I noticed how much coverage of that war was beginning to be framed around the, the traumatized American soldier or veteran. And I began to think about what it really meant For so much of the conversation in the American public domain to be talking about the trauma of troops. So that's really how I began or why I was interested in this, and to try to think about both what that kind of a conversation enables, what it made impossible, and what the political consequences of that were.
1: Yeah, So to dive into the history you tell, um, PTSD emerged uh, as a diagnosis during the Vietnam War. But it drew very heavily on research conducted on survivors of extreme events, such as the Holocaust or the bombings of Hiroshima uh, and Nagasaki. So intense alterations to the diagnosis had to happen uh, because in this new situation, the people being diagnosed were often the perpetrators of the very experiences in question. Mm -hmm. So could you speak to this challenge and the structure of PTSD as it was initially understood in this context?
0: Sure. So some of that is, I mean, there was obviously from the first and second world wars, there were military psychiatric discussions about combat trauma. But some of the people that became really central to articulating the trauma uh, for soldiers and veterans who had who had fought in Vietnam. Um, they, people like uh, Robert J. Lifton and Hai Shatten, they had they were psychoanalytically trained, or at least psychodynamically trained, still, and were in conversation with psychoanalysts such as William Niederlander and Henry Crystal, and Bruno Bettelheim, who had been working in the 50s and 60s with survivors of concentration camps, and so it was really well. So there was that conversation that was going on, and then in particular, Robert J. Lifton had done his early work in Hiroshima on survivors of the nuclear holocaust. So there was an overlap in conversation that was about what happens, what are the psychological afterlives of people who survive um, it, what they called encounters with the extreme. Key to that was, became the notion of survivor syndrome or survivor guilt. Now, clearly in those two instances, they were dealing with populations that were un. About or un, unequivocally victim populations, right? Um, concentration camp inmates, civilians who had survived um, the bo- the American atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but lived and focused on Hiroshima. But this was with a twist, and the twist was, as you noted, as you note that it was about veterans and soldiers who were perpetrators. I want to be clear that you know even. The move to labeling and understanding this as a trauma of perpetration, which I will um, lay out in a minute, was already a, a turn because conversations about uh, combat fatigue, let's say after World War II, were never framed in terms of perpetration. They were trained in terms of combat. I mean, they were framed in terms of combat. But for people like Lifton and Schatten and other people who were involved in the, in the development of what was first known as post Vietnam syndrome, Sorry, you may have to add this. What was first known as post-Vietnam syndrome, they came to this understanding while they were working with veterans who were against the war. So they develop a theory of trauma in tandem with members of the Vietnam Veterans Against the War who were running rap groups and who had started the rap groups without any participation of psychiatrists, and themselves were trying to process their experiences of the war in Vietnam. And then the VVAW becomes a context in which all sorts of psychiatrists and psychologists work with veterans of the war and begin to understand what the cause of their trauma is. And what these veterans tend to be talking about is what they considered sort of standard operating procedure on the battlefields of Vietnam being the commission of atrocities. People are reporting having committed in mass murder, I mean, participated in a mass murder, or having witnessed it and not done anything, having you know committed rapes, or again having witnessed and not stopped people. So the, the conversation was very much tethered to this being a war of excessive brutality, a war that's whose standard operating procedures were to quote Nick Terse, kill anything that moves. Um, where the body count was a, a sign of success. And these structures within the military, as whether, uh, as well as other elements of sort of military strategy and structure, encouraged mass killing on the killing fields of Vietnam. And th- these are veterans who came back and really questioned and had a crisis over what they participated in, that they got that they really came to understand as a brutal imperial endeavor. So post-Vietnam syndrome, Picks up this notion of survivor guilt and what it is as a as a key element of trauma, but the guilt, as Lifton um, understands it, is not misplaced. It's not concentration camp survivors who imagine that they had done that they must have collaborated in order to survive, and it's not the the survivor guilt of either concentration camp survivors or Hiroshima survivors who for Lifton were suffering this encounter with death. Why did I survive and not them? It was much more about what he came to understand or to name realistic guilt or following Martin Buber, ontic guilt, which meant a recognition that they really were guilty of crimes that they had committed in on the battlefields of Vietnam. And that was the primary source. Of trauma. So there's a, an inversion here from the question of victimhood to the question of perpetrator, but being a perpetrator as part of a large imperial project. So these were people who were responsible, but they were also calling out the US government, the US public in terms of the war itself as a structural, um, you know, militaristic endeavor.
1: Yeah, if we can maybe continue teasing this political angle out, um, you write a lot about how this original understanding of PTSD uh, in the Vietnam era stood as part of a larger political critique. So the men coming home were broken, but they understood that brokenness was a product of larger systemic forces and their own participation in such systems. So with this, many soldiers participated in anti-war activism, and so did many of the psychologists doing research on trauma. The diagnosis and response to it were tied to broader systems and activities and was deeply political. Could you speak to this angle of the condition and the sorts of participation that was encouraged and brought about? Right.
0: Right. So the activism, which I've spoken about, was at the center of the development of the post-Vietnam syndrome, right? So there were these rap groups where veterans and psychiatrists and or psychologists would get together and process as a group the trauma or the psychological suffering of veterans that had returned. And part of that was an explicit conversation about the war and how that, so that fed in not just to a particular understanding of what comes to be named post-Vietnam syndrome as being born of moral transgression, right? It is also tied into an understanding of what's involved in healing. And for veterans against the war and for the psychiatrists who worked with them, there was a, a commitment that healing would happen in part through these rap groups, what it means to process one's experiences and one's guilt, but the one had to engage politically in the world, that activism to end the war was also part of the healing process. As one person, one psychi- psychiatrist said at one point, I mean, these were people who were injured by the political act of war, by an imperial act of war they had to reclaim some sense of democratic citizenship and political agency as part of their healing, right? In some sense, it's also about making, one could say, some kind of reparations to take responsibility for ending the war and to try to um, agitate in that direction. And this, I think, is really important beyond the question of healing, what post-Vietnam syndrome was understood to be and how sort of... um, medicine and politics were completely inseparable at this in this can, understanding. It's also really important to keep in mind because come turn of the new millennium, come the new post 9-11 wars, in fact, this even starts in the first Gulf War um, in the 90s, there's this very prevalent American conversation or conversation in the U.S. public domain about American society being haunted by how Vietnam veterans were treated upon their return. And that narrative completely elides the fact that this was the one war where substantial numbers of veterans, I'm not saying the majority, but substantial numbers of veterans were part of an anti-war movement as it was still, as the war was still going on. They were important and leading voices in that movement, starting in the early seventies or late sixties. And in particular, because they couldn't be accused of having been hippies and never having gone to war. Right. Um, And that activism, that opposition is really erased by this idea that Vietnam veterans came home and they were merely spat upon by so-called civilians, which means an American parlance, American public the public that didn't go to war, et cetera. So this this history is also really important to understanding a kind of structure of conversation today, and at, at its height a little earlier in in the post 10 to 15, first 10 to 15 years of the post-9-11 wars, which is a rewriting a history of the American war in Vietnam, as if veterans and soldiers were merely victims of an American public that hated the war. But many of these people led the charge against the war, um, and including dissent within, um, within active du- duty soldiers, whether it was fragging, et cetera. There was a lot more dissent that was also coming from within those um, communities.
1: Moving into the years after Vietnam, trauma would be a key term in a variety of political debates, although it would endure some substantial revisions. One key thread you discuss is the feminist movement and its discourse around sexual assault. Major effort was expended on pushing against uh, rape victims, usually women's, sense of culpability in such events, which meant PTSD had to then be rethought again to make sense of victims' experience. Could you speak to the feminist movement's input on the diagnosis?
0: Yes. So I want to start a little bit earlier to explain why I focus on post-Vietnam syndrome somewhat separately. So the 1970s up to 1980, when the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association first includes something called post-traumatic stress disorder. And then I shift and look carefully at the 1980s into the early 90s. There's a sense in the scholarly literature, there's a sort of taken-for-granted argument that what happens in the 1970s is the convergence of activism amongst Vietnam veterans against the war on the one hand and feminist activists on the other. They converge, their interests um, merge, and what one gets is the production of trauma as a condition of victimhood. So at one end of interpretation, it's saying what PTSD allowed was for American society to come together, despite political differences, around the figure of the Vietnam veteran as a victim of the war, which again, I think is a, which I think is a massive misreading. And on the... um, And on the other hand, it's to say that part of that is because the feminist movement was such a central part of the the emergence of PTSD in 1980. And what I show in the book is if you pause over the 1970s and take seriously this radical politics out of which this notion of post-traumatic stress syndrome was born, and those are the activists that are most important in getting PTSD included in the 1980s. If you pause over that, and look very carefully, the feminist activists were not as involved in the 1980s. The conversations around rape were, were not actually really central to DSM's three conversations, even though it's one particular cause. You see that there's a conception of trauma at that moment. Again, trauma born of perpetration or born of something you did that has radical political potential. Then I flip to the 80s, and it's in the 1980s that the the feminist concerns um, come to have a much more profound influence on DSM and psychiatric definitions of trauma. And their project is, of course, a different one. They draw on the work of people like Robert J. Lifton, because what the anti-Vietnam psychiatrists actually succeeded in... Doing was was getting PTSD into the DSM 3 or defining it for the PTSD, for the DSM 3 as a legitimate disorder and one that was created by what was referred to as an event outside the realm of normal human experience. So it was an event. It wasn't that you already had some neurotic or um, psychiatric illness of your own that was being expressed, something happened to you or you did something. For feminist psychiatrists or people working with rape and incest victims, this was incredibly important because of the whole culture of blaming women and girls for sexual assault. So they needed that notion of the exterior event that can cause PTSD in almost anyone. It doesn't require a pre-existing condition or a kind of weakness or what's it called, Um, kind of proclivity to get uh, to to. Um, experience psychiatric illnesses. And in that move, they need trauma. They need the trauma victim, the, the person who suffers trauma or the tra- person diagnosed with trauma, to be a victim and to be innocent because that's what they're fighting against. They're fighting against blaming the victim and they're fighting against blaming the victim both in a cultural common sense and, of course, in the judicial system where the police, et cetera, all assumed that women were somehow guilty and even girls were somehow guilty no matter how young for what had happened to them. So that becomes begins to create an, a, a beginnings of a profound shift in conversations um, among psychiatrists who are also pushing to revise the DSM three for the next iteration, the DSM three R, that comes out in the late eighties and you begin to see the shift in defining PTSD towards the, um, being actually a victim rather than an agent in any way and towards the elimination of guilt as one of the affects associated with trauma. And so we get by the 90s into this place where both clinically and culturally we you know the common sense in in the US but not just in the US is that trauma is a condition of victimhood. It's born of having been victimized, right? And in fact it's born of life threat or perceived life threat to one's oneself or having witnessed it to someone else. So you, that kind of political valence of the earlier conception begins to drop out gradually of these formal definitions, right?
1: Yeah, developing this, another angle on this, another political movement you talk about was the re-emerging conservatism of the 70s and 80s, particularly In the Reagan revolution, interestingly, they bought into elements of the feminist critiques around questions of guilt and innocence in traumatic encounters while discarding the larger critique feminists were making especially regarding the way much violence against women happened within patriarchal structures such as the nuclear family. So with this new conceptual innocence in hand, conservatives then began a rethinking of the defeat in Vietnam and its implications for America, leading to a new narrative about our involvement in the conflict and the ramifications for future interventions. Could you explain this shift in uh, In terms of the kind of political and cultural understanding that they brought about here,
0: yeah. So I would flip it a little bit and kind of disentangle a few threads here that ultimately come back together. Right. Sort of starting the mid '70s, you have this um, push, the, 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 the beginnings of this conservative reconstruction of the war in Vietnam. You have the rise of the what come to be known as the neocons. You have the rise of the conservative movement that ultimately takes power when Reagan rises to the presidency in 1980, and key to that re- to that shift to the right, is reconstructing the war itself. So, the question, well. Materially key to it was reconstructing the military. The draft is ended in 1974 or 75, I can't remember exactly, by the Nixon administration. There's a need to rebuild a professional army, quote unquote. The army was seen as having been in disarray. And politically, it was very much understood that the draft had undermined the military project. You need a professional military that can be relied on. But the other piece of that, which is more the ideological piece, was to reconstruct what it meant that the U.S. had lost the war in Vietnam and the argument. And that becomes really important because these are people who want to reestablish the virtue of American intervention in the world and the U.S., and, and the whole thing around American exceptionalism that there, it, that this is not imperial power, that it has a particular moral role in the world and that's what intervention is about. And this is a kind of, obviously the height of the Cold War, that there is a project against communism that is not an imperial project. So then the question becomes, well the U.S did not w- lose the war in the battlefields of Vietnam, the U.S. lost the war on the home front that the anti-war public made it impossible for the US military to do what it needed to do to win the war in Vietnam. And a piece of that is where we get to this haunting and what happens to veterans when soldiers when they come home and become veterans is they're treated abominably and they're treated as if they're war criminals rather than heroes. So you begin to have a reconstruction at that ideological level. What's also of course going on in this era is it's the post civil rights era. And starting in the 1960s, you already have the rise of what has come to be called, you know, we know very well as law and order in the carceral state. Starting in the mid-60s, starting with the Johnson administration, but all the way on forward, law and order, and then you get the 1968 elections where uh, George Wallace is very explicit about this, law and order becomes the language through which one speaks about race without speaking about it directly. So civil rights demonstrations, the kinds of quote-unquote riots in the streets of cities gets recast as a problem of law and order and criminality rather than as a political movement. And what then begins to grow is what comes to be known in the 70s and then comes into its own when Reagan wins the presidency as the victims of crime movement. And the victims of crime movement has this whole commitment to the fact that the public sphere has become the public space which basically means urban public space with all the you know uh, silent and not so silent racial or racial overtones and undertones that have has become so dangerous that the normal like virtuous citizen can no longer walk the streets without being at risk of being mugged or assaulted or raped or murdered and this is a movement, again, very white, although it doesn't declare itself as a white movement, but it's a backlash against um, the, the politics of the civil rights movement now framed as crime, as a problem of crime. When Reagan comes to power, his administration formally backs that movement. It sets up a special committee that's called the Tax Task Force on Victims of Crime, and it tries to restructure the judiciary away from what is understood as the Warren court having gone too far in the direction of defending the rights of criminals or the accused and completely forgotten about so-called the rights of victims. Where this comes to matter to the trauma story is part of what emerges through this discourse and the task forces and then the laws that are Uh, past or the restructuring of police and constitutional amendments that are proposed is that one of the fallouts to being victimized by crime is a psychological fallout. So you begin again to see trauma now here entering into the mainstream. It enters into the mainstream through a a language of victimhood, very clearly victims of crime. and And then there's a convergence with this kind of feminist discussion around rape and incest. However, one incredibly important distinction is that feminists were very clear that the vast majority of women and girls who experienced sexual assault did so at the hands of people they knew intimately friends or family members, whereas the rhetoric of the victims of crime movement was this kind of this predator, that language of the predator of the streets, the stranger who attacks you. And at some point, these movements break. The feminist movement breaks from the National Organization of Victims of Crime because they don't want the federal government as involved. But so you have these movements that emerge out of very different kinds of politics. I mean, the feminist movement was very progressive and liberal, even if very white, And a decidedly conservative movement that is also committed to the patriarchal family, right? But there's a kind of convergence around this need for trauma to mean and to signal victimhood, and that begins in various ways through rape counseling centers and through units that are set up within police departments to deal with the psychological afterlives of crime for the victims, and of um, what becomes by the '90s psychological first aid that there are there's a sense that trauma is very real it's a normal response to being victimized and we need to respond we need to treat it because that is what the victim deserves and so one really flips entirely away from the kind of agentive responsibility that was constitutive of the original understanding of post-vietnam syndrome And then the last piece of this that is important is that in complex ways, veterans of the Vietnam War get incorporated into this discourse. They were not traumatized by what happened on the killing fields of Vietnam. In other words, they were not traumatized by what they did. The trauma was born of having returned home and being spat on and called baby killers. So the problem became the problem of an American public that victimized these veterans upon their return. Now, I do want to say in clinical practice in the VAs, the nature of clinical practice was still actually grappling with people suffering from a sense of guilt and what they had done. That doesn't disappear in any simple sense, but in a public arena and i talk about national reconciliation and the vietnam war memorial and the need to care for veterans on the one hand and in the some of the psychiatric literature that comes out in the 80s you begin to see a shift towards maybe they were victimized by the public on their return home right as a kind of formal reintegrating vietnams into a de- vietnam veterans into a definition of ptsd that no longer has space for being traumatized by what was called in DSM-3, as I said, behavior necessary for survival.
2: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: Yeah, so moving uh, past this part of the book into kind of some of the later sections, uh, with this new understanding of PTSD in hand, the military started to formally recognize PTSD and take steps to address it, um, whereas formally it had often been kind of suppressed because of that political angle you were speaking to. Um, Limitations soon emerged, however. The frameworks being used oftentimes were inadequate to the condition, but they were encouraged by, say, insurance companies who wanted more precise evidence-based diagnoses and approaches. Uh, Staff were also often limited, with there often only being one therapist for several hundred soldiers. Um, Could you explain the problems the military started to encounter here, especially as the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan picked up and how they spoke to deeper issues in play?
0: So the question of how the military and the VA, for that matter, come to recognize and treat PTSD is a very long story that I probably can't summarize here or I can't Give an adequate account, but I'll say two words and then flip to post 9/11. It certainly begins in the 70s and 80s in the VA. You see it because once PTSD is a formal diagnosis in the DSM-3, the psychiatric pr- profession has recognized that, and the VA begins to treat PTSD in Vietnam veterans. There's a big study in the 80s trying to understand it, a congressional study, and that continues gradually through the 80s and 90s. Post-9-11 is a big turning point, and I think it's a big turning point for all sorts of reasons in terms of formal recognition. First, this is the first long-scale or sustained war the U.S. has fought since the war in Vietnam, as in sustained for American military personnel. There are people on the ground. They are rotating in and out. Something like two million soldiers ultimately went into the killing fields of either Iraq or Afghanistan. And they're seeing more and more evidence of psychological trauma because they send out mental health teams to study uh, the impact of the war. As the war goes on, because this is a professional military, they are. it is a military that's not sized really to be fighting two major wars at the same time, let alone all the other kind of drone wars and special op wars that spread across Africa and other parts of the Middle East and South Asia. Um, So there's a problem of really having to keep what they call force protection. You cannot lose this many people to psychological injuries and keep sustaining the war. So there are all sorts of internal reasons besides the fact that trauma by the turn of the millennium is more generally considered a recognizable and very real disorder or illness, right? Psychiatric um, response to violence. So to begin with, it's, I don't wanna suggest that the response of the military or the VA has been enough to respond to the problem amongst military personnel, but certainly they've been more concerned with PTSD among soldiers in the active duty of military than has ever been the case before. The problem then that begins to emerge, which I sort of uh, trace in the book and partly through talking to psychologists at the VA and then going to various conferences with the military and other people, is they begin to realize over time, or, or a subset of people, I should be very clear, begin to realize that a lot of the treatment, both the definition of PTSD as a response to a life-threatening event and... The standard evidence, what's called evidence-based medicine protocols for treating it, which become much more prominent in psychiatry, evidence-based protocols do in the 90s because of the transformation of insurance and HMOs and the need to have clearly identifiable diagnoses and clearly structured and defined treatment protocols. That's what it takes. It's no longer going to fund years of psychotherapy, right? So you have this larger transformation. But the clinical protocols then that are developed for rape, I mean for PTSD, were actually designed for single incident violent traumas. So really rape is at the center of prolonged exposure therapy, for example, that is one of the primary treatments for PTSD. And what they're encountering is people who don't seem to be traumatized because they feared for their life. Um, it's they are not don't seem to be traumatized because they feel like a victim. And it's not really helpful to you know the other piece of CBT cognitive behavioral therapy for something like rape is to begin to undo people's feelings of guilt it wasn't because I walked down that dark street. I don't bear responsibility for this because women are so conditioned to feel somehow responsible for what happened to them. People are, in some sense, if you want to go back to the 1970s, a lot of people are talking about suffering, the consequences of things they have done or of having witnessed or, you know, somebody tells the story of, You know, we pounded this village with artillery, we went in and there was nothing left. Nothing was moving, you know, not not a goat, not a person, et cetera, right? So then the question becomes what's going on in these protocols and are we not, is our understanding of PTSD on the one hand and the clinical protocols we've developed to treat them on the other, are they inadequate to the task? Are they inadequate to the task that A, is often not single incident, although that doesn't get resolved, but B, and most important to people who, as some psychologists, several have told me, you know, these are guys who often, you know, they get a high off of the of combat. Killing is not, you know, they, they don't have the same, not killing, they don't have the same kind of fear that we assume one would have in that context. These are people who have gone into the military, they're trained for that kind of fearful, you know, very um, kinetic situation. A lot of what's being narrated is a sense that I transgressed morally and how do I live with myself? So then that gets us back to the question of transgression, but transgression in a context in which it's not a political critique. So on the one hand, there's a kind of rethinking of clinical protocols so that what we're not trying to convince someone is they're not responsible because as people say to me, have said to me, they know they're responsible and it's not helpful for you to keep saying to them, they're not responsible. But when they say they're responsible, it's a sense of their own moral core and the military code that you are responsible for what you do. It's not a discussion of responsibility that takes up the question of what was the war for? Was the war right? Was this something, is there a political critique that's necessary here? And at the same time, it's not a conversation about responsibility that is talking about atrocity or war crimes. It's saying in the normal course of what a war is, in doing their job, people are put at risk for trauma. Now trauma understood As also incorporating what is called moral injury, although even if without that language, the possibility of being traumatized by having done something or not having stopped uh, a kind of moral transgression or just by having killed, even if the kill was legitimate under rules of engagement.
1: Yeah, to tease this out even more, another key difficulty that emerges is the idea of military culture, where people in the military are ingrained with certain values and ideas, and part of their struggle post-combat is having to reconcile what they did on the battlefield with who they are as soldiers or who they thought they were. So a couple elements of this you pull up are a cultural relativism that gives a critical leniency to certain values, as well as a sort of militarized identity politics that shifts the focus from what one did to who one is and what one's actions in combat say about such an identity. These combine to send people in search of resolution uh, in a very personal rather than material transformation. Could you explain these uh, threads and how they combine to channel responses to trauma down a very personalized, depoliticized route.
0: Right. So both of those threads are ultimately situated under a discourse and common sense in American public culture around what's called the civil military divide. So let me start with the culturalist argument. So the argument is, I mean, of course, as we know, less than 1% of the American public serves in the military as the language goes and more than the numbers what is quite clear is most military bases are concentrated and i think it's five states most are below the mason dixon line or they're in california Um, the huge numbers of people who are in the military have family members in the military it's one of the most um uh, reliable predictors of who would go into the military is having some family connection to the military, et cetera. So you have this divide that then also is is very much construed. It's not a, just a statistical difference. It's construed as you know almost incommensurable worlds. And the language then that gets picked up in within psychiatry is a language of what is called cultural psychiatry, even though often they're not referencing the direct cultural psychiatry people, but that it becomes the language. Cultural psychiatry emerged as a subfield of psychiatry that said, we need to take culture into account, in other words, but focused on sort of the marginal people who were, or marginalized people who were indigenous subjects or race subjects, et cetera, and or um, that one can't always leave those kinds of cultural differences outside the clinical setting. So here the military itself becomes construed as a culture. It's a culture that has its own values, has its own, basically its own values and virtues, is what this is really about. The notion of service, the notion of of uh, being responsible for one's actions, of very that the argument is that these moral codes are you know, which are both moral codes and legal codes, rules of engagement, international laws of war, are sort of drilled into soldiers and I um, long before they ever see or go to the front, many of whom never really see combat, something about the military people don't usually talk about, et cetera, et cetera. It's its own cultural world. So in order to treat a soldier as a psychiatrist or psychologist, you need to understand military culture, which is part institutional structure and again, part about values. And one thing about that that becomes really important to point out here is it's not just that it's a different world, a different cultural world, but the valence in this Discourse of the military-civilian divide is that it's actually a better world. And I was recently watching, actually in the context of a class, I screened this film called Combat Obscura by Miles Lugosi, who's a former Marine. It's a documentary made by Miles Lugosi, a former Marine um, photographer um, who was in Afghanistan. And there's one scene in which he basically shows, it's a very interesting film, actually, very flat, very unromantic understanding or depiction of what what being in Afghanistan on an everyday basis involved. And there's one scene in which there's a chaplain, a military chaplain, who's giving the kind of eulogy for a Marine who died in this memorial. And he says, this is someone who, unlike 90% of Americans, stepped up to serve You know, it goes on and on about not being selfish, about stepping up to serve, about being, I don't know why he used the number 90% because it's actually 99%, right? But he kept saying 90% and part of it then he was saying, this is someone who will never have to wonder whether his life had any meaning. It had meaning. He was doing something in the world. And that's the kind of valence. That is structured into this conversation about the military civilian divide. So it's not cultural relativism simply in the sense that it's a different culture, there's also a sense that it's a better one. Um, the way in which that devolves into identity politics I think is very particular and it's it's that there are moments where you hear that grammar of identity politics running through which is really when the conversation devolves into you as a civilian and again in this discourse civilian means Whoever Americans who never served in the military and who do not know war, rather than an Iraqi or Afghan civilian who's kind of caught in the crossfire of war, Um, you who have never served cannot know. You don't know what it's like to go to war. You don't know what that experience is, and therefore, really, you you have to defer in a certain way. So I I don't argue in the book that there's a an explicit sort of appropriation of the notion of identity politics in here. But I think there's a grammar that runs through this conversation and it both saturates the psychiatric literature, which is you need to know who they are before you can treat them. Right. And it runs through a more public discourse of can those of you who've never been to war. And that seems to mean having been a soldier in war, not having been a civilian in war, You can never really know. And that really feeds on this experiential structure of identity politics, right, where we speak from our experiences and no one else can challenge them. So that's what I'm trying to thread in the book, both internal to psychiatry, but even more importantly, as it comes to circulate more widely in a kind of public conversation about war, such that it is.
1: Yeah. Turning to other responses to PTSD, as neoliberalism started to gut and privatize a lot of social services, other institutions started picking up the slack, one of which was religious institutions like churches. This led to PTSD often receiving a heavily theological spin in terms of its etiology, content, and what sort of cures might work. Could you speak to the impact of churches stepping in to try and address combat trauma?
0: Yeah, so to just very briefly, the devolving to church groups, of course, is part of like outsourcing care, which begins in the Reagan administration for everybody but the military, because the military becomes what Jennifer Middlestadt writes about the rise of the military welfare state in the 1980s, just as the welfare state is being, um, taken apart outside of the military and then by the 1990s with well first father bush and then clinton and then george w bush there are these various um uh statutes or or just declarations that allow that outsourcing to go to religious groups so a lot of the outsourcing then ends up in non-governmental organizations or charities that are either formally religious as in churches or um just have christian and it really tends to be christian christian roots so what happens post 9-11 is this is very much there are the military chaplains who think about trauma in a particular way and then there are these groups that work with veterans groups like um uh oh my god i can't remember okay i'll leave it for it's voa but i can't remember what it stands for um Basically, you have clergy, you have non-governmental groups, et cetera, that work with veterans. And a lot of what they work on with veterans are, I mean, reintegration. And a lot of that includes people having a kind of emotionally and psychologically hard time re-engaging. So as I had mentioned in the post 9-11 period, this language of moral injury emerges to try to capture what people like Lifton and Chatton were trying to capture in both post-Vietnam syndrome, but without any of the political valences, which is... What are the consequences? What are of moral transgression, perceived moral transgression in this sense—that killing, thou shalt not kill—and yet when you go to war, you kill, etc., etc. Well, some of these groups and these um, members of groups or clergies and NGOs who are working with veterans basically start saying, "Well, moral transgression—you can't think." the language of transgression outside of a theological or religious perspective. And even the clinicians are beginning to talk about injuries to the soul. And for them, they need soul in some secular sense of some profound sense of who one is. But the soul, obviously, in religious theology and particularly Christian theology, means something very different. So you have chaplains in the military who are writing about this, and you have people who work with... Um, non governmental groups that are often funded through the federal government by outsourcing who begin to say maybe clinical medicine isn't quite up to the task here because if we're talking about moral transgression and if we're talking about um, damage to the soul, what we're really talking about is a theological problem. It's a crisis of faith. And they begin to reframe this in the language of war being a a confrontation with radical evil. And what we're really talking about here is sin. But again, it's not saying they really sinned. It's saying they think they have sinned. So then the work of helping people deal with their moral injury, they really pick up this language, becomes a work of pastoral care and a work of trying to reintegrate um, individuals into the community in which they live, but also for many people into the community of Christ. Although people say you can do in other religions, there are Jewish rabbis who um, also participate in this, but the primary conversation is a Christian one. And the process of healing then is understood not just as pastoral care, but also through the question of what role might ritual play. That in fact, what religions do well is ritual, and there's something about ritual that allows you to go into this liminal space and begin to let go of the grief. So one example um, that's given in one book is actually a chaplain in Iraq, military chaplain, and before the um, platoon move comes back stateside, he creates a ritual where everyone writes on a piece of paper what they need to be forgiven for, and then they throw it into a fire and they burn it it's an urn as a kind of symbolic sense of we're going to leave this behind. And it's that sense that ritual is collective. It's not individual, it's not clinical, it's dealing with these profound senses of having sinned or having violated one's moral and religious code, that that ultimately captures what this term moral injury means, and it cannot be adequate. For some people, it can't be treated at all clinically, and for other religious figures thinking through this organization, you need some combination of the clinical and the spiritual.
1: Another means of addressing trauma has been through theater performances, including having soldiers and their families participate in readings and discussions of various classics from Shakespeare to Homer. While you do point out that this has potential to bring in some radical, critical ideas to the discussions happening around politics, war, and trauma, this potential tends to get buried under a more prominent imperative to have soldiers speak their truth without fear of judgment. Could you speak to these performances and what they reveal?
0: Right. So I write a bit about, in one chapter, I I deal specifically with a group called Theater of War that was founded by Brian Dorries, who studied, you know, classics in college and, you know, just became deeply, for personal reasons, engaged in thinking about Greek tragedies. And he reads Greek tragedies as plays that were designed to teach us about pain and suffering. And following in a tradition of uh, Jonathan Shea, who's the first person who names moral injury in response to Vietnam veterans, who rereads the Iliad and the Odyssey as basically plays that were designed for publics to kind of let go and process the pain of war. These were societies that had been at war for a hundred years. Soldiers come back. How do they process their pain and grief? So Theater of War start. It started by Brian Dorries in in connection with the Marines. He spends a couple of years getting them to agree to let him stage play readings. He does you know play readings, and he does some some of the less um, well known plays by uh, Sophocles, Ajax, and uh, Philoctetes. It's the ones he focuses on, and basically he started doing these in the context of Marine bases and then started staging what he calls in these mixers, civilian veteran and military audiences. Basically what happens is you you have a group of often very famous actors who just are sitting on the stage at a table, there's no adornment, and they read these extraordinarily painful scenes from Ajax uh, or whatever, which are really scenes of suicide and scenes of, um, you know, encountering or, you know, wives and children then grieving, and then opens the conversation up to the audience. And and what Doris thinks he's doing is, is really allowing these stagings are really understood as cathartic in that classic psychoanalytic sense, although without all the deep psychoanal content of psychoanalysis tethered to it. that um, if you that if they're designed to release the pain. And so when he stages them in marine context, it's a question of this is a way or which is where he did it, Marines get to express their pain and in ways that they just have no other context to express. And in the context of these, quote-unquote, mixed audiences, it's really a call upon so-called civilians, the American public, to listen to the pain and suffering of the veterans and soldiers in their midst. The problem that emerges is, of course, the way they're structured and the way Dory's understands them and, in fact, um Orchestrates them because he's there as the MC effectively. Is there's really not much space for anybody who is not a veteran or soldier to say much of anything other than, I hear your pain and suffering. So I was once in one that was held at Columbia. I mean, I've been to a bunch of them, and someone who actually was a professor, I don't know who it was, but much older, who says, I remember the 60s. And the difference was, there were voices within the military, right? Again, there was dissent within the active military ranks. There was dissent within, they were articulating critique. Where is that now? You're calling upon the public, but what about them? And it was shut down incredibly quickly. It was like, Dory's basically said, that's an important question, but you can't put the responsibility on them. So again, really, it's not a space where you can have this kind of you know, engagement about even suffering and pain, if you think about anybody suffering and pain other than the American soldier or ex-soldier. It's shut down, and really it becomes a space where the so-called civilian public needs to listen and not judge the pain of others. And Not judging means also not really talking about the war itself, as in not really engaging in politics, because that gets moved very quickly off the center. And that goes back to your identity politics question, which I think, again, that's where you see that grammar, which is you can't really speak and you can't really ask, where is that dissent? This is not your experience. You do not know this kind of violence. You do not know this kind of pain. And I just want to say, among other things, we live in an extraordinarily violent society. I mean, the idea that Americans who have not, well, even if we leave out the large question of Huge swaths of immigrants to this country who came here fleeing wars, who, who seem to not be part of this understanding of who civilians in America are, um, but also the idea that that most the American public has no experience of violence, and so this is so other that one can in no way weigh in on it is a kind of absurd statement given the levels of violence and gun violence with which we live. And there are veterans who are saying just that, wait a minute, why say you have to defer here? Really? there are It's not quite as foreign or inconceivable as one. And we can't fully understand anybody's experience of anything. But the idea that this is so beyond the pale that we can't even begin to imagine is a problem because it makes it impossible to really talk about the wars
1: yeah to tease this out a little more in the last chapter you turn to a couple groups we've been alluding to but haven't quite heard from yet The first is the American citizen or civilian who has been put in something of an odd spot. They have been given the imperative to listen to soldiers who need to tell their stories of what they did abroad. But civilians can apparently never really understand what combat is like. So judgment, critique, or any real response is considered inappropriate. Can you explain this odd sort of bind most citizens have been put in and the politics it reflects and embodies?
0: Right. So in the final chapter, I look a lot. I really start looking carefully at a public discourse that I think was at its most was most prominent probably between about 2005 and 2010, 11, 12. And what you see is all these journalists, um, journalists, philosophers, various people engaging in public conversations. And it's not just so. There's a Huffington Post series, and there's a woman who's a philosophy professor at Georgetown and you know you even it even gets covered on very conservative news networks where the conversation is really to teach a kind of american public about what what the experience what the experience of trauma is on return from war and then to say the issue is less than 1% of the population served The rest of the population has had no experience of this war. Life has gone on as normal, which of course is true. It's the privilege of being able to, the imperial privilege of being able to fight your wars thousands of miles away. Um, But then the obligation that's being rhetorically uh, constantly demanded, and again, I want to say this is a kind of rhetoric more than it is actually material in any way, is to say that as an American civilian, as a civilian, Your obligation is to help reintegrate and listen to those who went off to war, right? So you can read the Huffington Post if anybody wants to look at it. They have a series of articles, three articles called Moral Injury, um, written by David Wood, who was a journalist embedded with, a, I think, a Marine uh, battalion in Afghanistan. But as I really argue through the book, the problem is, okay, so let's just back up. There's a lot of conversation about the stereotyping of soldiers. Who are they? Are they Rambo figures? Are they all traumatized? We always stereotype. Do they? The the thing of, oh, civilians are constantly asking people, did you kill someone? How inappropriate is that? You know, the military is also another job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I really pause and say, but let's think about the stereotype. There are stereotypes of, of military personnel, what if we stop and think about the the stereotype of the civilian and the stereotype of the civilian is basically construing the civilian as as both innocent and selfish and kind of self-absorbed is all I can say. So there's this constant thing like you were at the mall while we were at war. You were at the mall. Of course, it harkens back to Bush's thing. Don't worry, go to the mall, go on shopping, life should go on. And it's a line in the um, long Long walk home. I think it's Billy Lynn's Long Walk Home. I can't remember the novel, um, but it comes up again and again. But within that, again, is the assumption innocence here does not operate as a positive with a positive valence. It's an accusation. You are innocent in the sense of you are ignorant because you never stepped up. You never went off to war. You made other people do it for you so that you could go on with your own life. And now you just have to listen because you cannot know what what they go through. And so on the one hand, there is a call that the the so-called civilian needs to take responsibility for the wars. And at moments even saying, OK, you voted for these people. You put them in power. You have responsibility, which I completely agree, but soldiers voted for them, too. In other words, I think everybody has to take responsibility here. But on the other hand, there's a lot of what you need to learn to do is listen without judgment. And so I think through the chapter about, well, what do we mean by judgment? Um, There's all this rhetoric around you need to say to somebody, you know, not just listen, but say, I honor your service. Well, can you say, can you be empathetic without honoring somebody's service? Can you say, yeah, that was horrible, but I don't, why would I honor service in a war that I think was wrong? Right? So it's that tension that I try to work through. And what I really come to argue is what you're really being asked to do is put politics aside because the focus is entirely on this figure of the traumatized soldier an american soldier but if you want to have a conversation about the wars you can't bracket bracket the politics and one of the first pieces of advice david wood to just give a who's the journalist one of the journalists gives to readers about how to listen he says let's put the question of war itself aside well once you put that question aside you've given away the possibility of politics right it requires that we judge. It doesn't mean it requires we judge someone personally for what they did, although there might be instances in which it's perfectly fair to judge someone personally. Um, but also one can say, one can feel empathy and yet still refuse to sort of understand citizenship as the responsibilities of citizenship as equivalent to being the therapist and listening to the returning soldier as if they're your patient on the therapeutic couch or a blind committal. The book in some ways is much more addressed to liberals, right? Like we know conservatives who supported the war and probably continue to, and we know that there's a lot of kind of rah-rah around the military and certain kinds of conservative circles, right? My concern is the ways in which liberals and progressives end up partaking in a similar militarist grammar through this deference to the soldier, through this sensibility of, we are haunted by the war in Vietnam and we cannot treat soldiers that way again. I'm much more interested in that um, sector of the population, which sees itself as not being invested or attached to American militarism. but this there is a way in which, it's entirely attached because the conversations about the war tend to be circumscribed within a conversation about American suffering. It is uh, Charles Appy talks about who is historian has written a lot about the American war in Vietnam, writes about by the 1980s, that war has turned entirely into an American tragedy. And that is the problem today. It is primarily an American tragedy. And even at the moment of the rise of, very public, very progressive politics, Um, in particular with the rise of Trump, there was virtually no conversation about the fact that the U.S. is still at war, right? There was the race questions, there was the Muslim ban, in other words, people coming into the U.S., there's the question of abortion and women's rights, there are all sorts of progressive movements that emerge. The problems around policing and There's virtually, there was no large movement either in challenging Trump's rise or, you know, in the kind of progressive to bring him down that was about, that recognized or put at the center that the U.S. is at war, right? It's just not part of American progressive consciousness in any sustained way that uh, that would be equal to the vast length and destruction of these wars.
1: Yeah. Um, Moving along, another group that has been kept silent are civilians of nations we send our troops to, Iraq and Afghanistan, to name a couple prominent examples. They're exposed to the same violence American soldiers are, but the question of their trauma rarely comes up and is rarely factored into our understanding of the psychic costs of conflict. So how does this erasure function and what does this silence enable politically for American empire?
0: Well, I think that the silencing happens precisely because so much of the focus of Basically, there's been an assumption and a very common rhetoric that these wars have not been present in the American public sphere. They've been invisible. They've only been invisible if you think that the figure of the American soldier and veteran, and in particular, the injured soldier and veteran, and again, even more specifically, the traumatized soldier and veteran, does not is not about the war. These wars have been incredibly prominent if you take seriously, that they appear on the home front, on the American home front, through this figure of the traumatized soldier. Think about television shows, think about journalism, think about literature and veterans' literature, et cetera. So I think that's exactly the problem with this, is we shift the focus without explicitly calling soldiers veterans. They come to occupy that slot, as if they are the only victims and those suffering from these wars. But having said that, Civilians in Iraq and Afghanistan do not suffer the same violence as American soldiers. They are civilians in a war zone, right? If there's a moral equivalence to be drawn, and if there's a question of suffering and pain that might be equivalent, it would be between combatants on both sides. But if there ever is a moral equivalence drawn or even mentioned, it's between American soldiers and Iraqi and Afghan, et cetera, civilians. Those are not the same experiences of war. The vast majority of people who die in wars post Second World War, 85% are civilians in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's civilians. It's not American soldiers, and it's it, you know it's civilians and then combatants at a local level. So I don't think that they they suffer the same violence, and I think that we have to be very clear that they do not suffer the they are on the receiving end of American military violence, and of course the violence of the combatants. That are, you know, whether it's the Taliban or whoever in Iraq and Afghanistan. So the equivalence can't be American soldiers and Iraqi and Afghan and et cetera civilians if we're going to talk about any equivalence or psychological. I mean, if we're going to talk about the, the trauma of combat, well, there are other combatants in the scene, right? But anyway, I think this focus on the figure of the American soldier who is traumatized or seriously injured in other ways because there's extraordinary injury right is precisely what makes it impossible to have that other conversation in any sustained matter i mean it's out there the pop you know it pops up we know this is going on it just is not politically salient in any way in american politics
1: Yeah, so given the last year of conflict in Ukraine, rising tensions with China and increasing global instability due to economic crises and climate change, the potential for conflict is likely to be with us for some time. Given everything you've put on the table, are there new ways of thinking about the psychic costs of conflict that might help push us away from it or at least open up space to be critical of it? Uh, put another way, how can we talk about conflict in a way that enables a humanistic critique of empire rather than its reification?
0: So I would answer that in two parts. One is part of the reason I went back and revisited, or a big part of the reason I went back and revisited the 1970s and the work of the Vietnam Veterans Against the War and the psychiatrists, radical psychiatrists who worked with them, is I think. You know, rather than it being the moment, as I said, where trauma becomes victimhood and you've set the responsibility of American military and the military's institution soldiers aside, it's really this one moment where you see that trauma and politics are not alternatives. You can have a deeply politicized understanding of trauma. So you can have an understanding of the suffering of American troops that absolutely still takes into account a political critique of the war. And if one is going to understand or think about trauma and psychic damage, one shouldn't extract it from the politics that produces it. Having said that, I actually think what we really need to do is move the conversation off of psychic damage. We need to have political conversations. What are these wars about? What are the US actually interests in these countries? What about the war on terror that is still going on? The US is still has special op troops all over the world. They are still carrying out drone operations. They are still training local militaries to fight so-called, you know, terrorists. This war is still going on. I actually think we need to shift the conversation and say we need to have a political conversation here about U.S. interests, about U.S. empire, about the stakes for the U.S. and Ukraine. Again, and I want to be clear, the Russian invasion of Ukraine was a war crime in the same way that the U.S. invasion of Iraq was, explicitly started on a lie. Do Ukrainians have the right to defend their own country? Absolutely. Is the U.S. somehow a virtuous moral leader of the world now with Ukraine? No. The U.S. has its own interests. NATO did not Help. Well, let's put it this way: NATO made the rise of the radical kind of a fascist imaginary in Russia possible as well. There's responsibility there. We have to have those conversations, right? Not just conversations about psychic damage. It fl- it shifts the focus off of the conversations. What are the material? What are the economic stakes here? What is the role of the military-industrial complex and the kinds of profits that are being made off of these wars? are there other ways to see the world as not a zero sum game, right? The US isn't some like selfless empire here. And those are the conversations that need to be had.
1: Yeah, that's a good note to end on. And that brings us through the book. So as a final question, I always like to ask what, if anything, are you working on now? Are you taking research in any new directions? Do you have anything we can kind of anticipate from you in the near or far future?
0: At the moment, I'm not walk, working on a big book project yet, but I think I'm doing two things. Partly, I'm going back to work on the question of Israel and Palestine, which I haven't, which my first two books, one was entirely about, one was partly about. Um, and it, at this very particular moment, clearly where the fascist parties and explicitly fascist parties run the Israeli state, and I'm really trying to think about um, how that shifts. How one might want to think about politics and including more generally the politics of the right um, you know with the rise of trump et cetera, and all these fascist movements there's a lot of um, work that really has argued about post facts and right what it means to live in a world where there are no facts and actually i'm trying to think about well what does it mean to live in a world where there are facts and you're okay with it so for example in the context of israel and the fascist parties but not just the fascist parties including the mainstream it's no longer true that the general uh the general attitude is that the Nakba, the war of 1948 never happened palestinians were never expelled now it's like yeah they were expelled and the position of the fascist party is we need to do it again so what does that do for thinking again about what kinds of what does that do to politics it means that you know it's not that the world has to be convinced that X is true for Y to happen. We know very well, and yet we're not doing it. And that's the same thing I think going on in the U.S. around militarism. Is it really true that there was no information out there about what the U.S. has been doing to populations in all, in Iraq, Afghanistan, et cetera? The information's out there. It's not that it's a secret. The question is, maybe no one really cares. So what does one do in the face of that? And again, I don't just mean the radical right, I also mean a kind of liberal complacency. And I'm also going to continue writing a bit about wars. And one of the things I'm thinking about is a lot of the literature on sort of new kind of humanitarian war is all about, and drone warfare is all about sort of the reduction of casualties. And they mean civilian casualties. And on the one hand, of course, compared to firebombing cities or even Vietnam, the casualties are lower, although they're huge, and they're probably 600,000 in Iraq alone, right? But those are direct casualties. I really want to think about I really want to write an article, the title of which is, what, what Does It Take to Kill Someone? That one has to think about the violences of these wars in terms of these enduring destructions. Uranium depleted weapons, for example, or burn pits. It's not just U.S. veterans who are suffering the effects of burn pits. What about people who've been living next to those burn pits now for 20 years? So that's the other piece I want to sort of think about a little bit.
1: Yeah, very That's heavy well stuff, enough. but you've got a lot to work with. So in the meantime, Nadia Abu Alhaj, thank you so much for being with us.
0: Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.